On the afternoon of September 30, 1968, Wendy Jo Hallison needed a new hairdryer. If you were to take a moment to look up some pictures of the 22-year-old co-ed, it's easy to see that she very much enjoyed styling her beautiful dark hair in some of the most popular ways women did during that period of time in the late 1960s. You will also see she was, indeed, quite stunning as well. Not surprisingly, Wendy Jo had been a former beauty queen, and that's easy to see. She was just a lovely woman, and she was creative too, majoring in art at what was then Valley State College. She headed out to a thrifties drugstore. Do you guys remember thrifties? If you are in the United States, I'm not sure if they were everywhere, but where I'm at, they're all now Rite-Aids. But they do still sell Thrifty's ice cream, which is what they were really famous for when I was a kid. We used to ride our bikes and get 20 cent scoops. Now I think a scoop is like three or four dollars. The Thrifty's that she was going to was located in what is known as the Mid-Wilshire District area of Los Angeles. Surrounded by the Mid-City District to the south, Beverly Hills to the west, West Hollywood to the north, and Koreatown to the east. Wendy Jo phoned her sister, Linda, that afternoon. She told her that she saw an ad in the paper that Thrifties was having a sale on hair dryers and asked if she wanted to go shopping with her. But Linda had to decline. At the time, she had two young boys at home. It was a Sunday and her husband was home from work and she really wanted to stay home and relax with her family. So, Wendy Jo went alone. This phone call, this menial trip to thrifties that her sister asked her to go on, the fact that she decided not to, it would haunt Linda for many, many decades to follow. Wendy Jo, driving her green Ford Thunderbird. That car was her pride and joy. She made that stop at the 50s on the corner of Fairfax and Wilshire. A short time later, she was seen buying gas at a nearby gas station, just down the street from the drugstore. After that, she would never be seen alive again. Wendy Jo was raised in Los Angeles with her older sister I mentioned earlier, Linda. Her father was a real estate agent, and her mother had been an accountant, but then stayed at home after she had her girls. The sisters were close. They were both really creative. They enjoyed painting, and they both excelled at playing the piano. Wendy Jo was very close to her family. She was fun-loving, outgoing, very kind, and always smiling. She attended art classes at San Fernando Valley State College. Today, the campus is called Cal State Northridge. And she lived at home with her parents. Linda had already gotten married and moved out. And Wendy Jo had a little poodle named Pierre. And when she left that Sunday afternoon to get that coveted hairdryer that was on sale, she would never come back. Wendy Jo's family became concerned when she failed to show back up at home after a few hours, 
She had only gone to run one errand, maybe two. It wasn't like her to be gone for an extended amount of time without letting anyone know. She always checked in. By nightfall, Wendy Jo's mom was in a panic. She tried to call police so she could file a missing persons report, but they told her it was not their policy to begin a missing persons investigation that early, that they needed to wait, whatever their standard was at that time, 24 or 48 hours, whichever. It was much too long for Wendy Jo's family to want to wait. We know this is not the policy now, this waiting period for any person, child or adult, to be reported missing. It's hard to believe that this flawed standard stood for so long, though. How many cases may have turned out differently if reports of missing persons were taken forthwith? Anyway, Wendy Joe's family weren't just going to sit around and wait for the police to decide how long is long enough for their daughter to be missing for it to be official. They took matters into their own hands and launched a search effort themselves. A gentleman by the name of Gil Court, who was actually married to Wendy Joe's sister, Linda, at the time, happened to be a private investigator as well. He was able to get some of his connections and some of his friends to help join in the search. He also commissioned a helicopter to help search the surrounding areas from the sky. The next morning, they started up again, bright and early, but the search it would not last much longer. It hadn't even been an hour since they started going that morning that Wendy Joe's boyfriend, who was actually up in the helicopter looking for any sign of Wendy Joe's vehicle, spotted her prized Thunderbird parked along Fairfax Avenue, just a few blocks from where she had last been seen filling up her car at that gas station. Gil hurried to the location where her car was found, and upon closer inspection, he found the keys had been tossed onto the floorboard of the back seat. It was that dreaded moment when he knew he needed to pop the trunk. And when he did, the search came to an end. Wendy Joe was inside. In talking about that moment a half century later, he would describe it as the worst day of his life. Wendy Jo's sister was anxiously awaiting the news at her parents' house with her children. When her husband finally came through the door, it was the first time she'd ever seen him in tears. His words to her, We found her. She's gone. It would later be determined that Wendy Jo was sexually assaulted prior to being strangled to death. From the condition of her fingernails, splintered and broken, Investigators surmised that she fought for her life. The rope that the killer used to strangle her was left behind at the scene. Because Wendy Jo still had on her jewelry, including her watch, robbery was not a motive for this crime. But the one thing they didn't find, something conspicuously missing from the scene, that hairdryer. The very thing that enticed her out of the house that day to head over for that can't-miss sale at Thrifty's. Detectives assigned to the case began with those who were closest to Wendy Joe. They first focused their investigation on the four men that she was well acquainted with 
One was her boyfriend. Another was an ex-boyfriend. Another, her brother-in-law, Linda's husband, Gil. And the fourth was a friend of hers. Detectives are working under the assumption that the person who attacked and murdered her may have very well been someone she was familiar with, someone she knew, someone who would have known that she would be out of the house shopping by herself that afternoon, who may have sought opportunity to take advantage of that. In addition, the strangulation. Investigators felt that was a very up-close and personal way to kill somebody, that there was a close intimate relationship between victim and killer. Police were particularly interested in Wendy Jo's boyfriend. They were seeing some red flags right away with him. He was the one who happened to find her car from that vantage point way up where the helicopter was flying. And based on where it was parked, it wasn't something that would have necessarily stood out, insinuating that he may have had to have prior knowledge as to the location of the vehicle, as in he must have known where the car was. Even the helicopter pilot couldn't figure out how he was able to see the car from where they were at. To him, it was like finding a needle in a haystack. When detectives brought him in for questioning, they asked him if he would be willing to submit to a polygraph examination. He agreed right away. He was anxious for investigators to keep moving forward with the case, and he wanted them to do what they needed to do to eliminate him. And then he failed. Investigators were growing more and more suspicious of him by the minute. Ultimately, though, their suspicions went nowhere. No matter what they thought of Wendy Jo's boyfriend or the other men who were close to her in her life, there just wasn't any evidence that definitively pointed to any of them. It wasn't mentioned in any of the articles that I found about this case, but investigators did say that Wendy Jo's nails were broken, which means she must have scratched or injured the man who'd attack her, presumably. I'm certain if any of their initial suspects, the boyfriend included, had any obvious injuries to their face or arms or chest, then that would have been pretty conclusive proof that they may have had a hand in her death. But from what I could see, detectives did not indicate the presence of any injuries on any of the men that they questioned. And then the investigation into Wendy Jo's death stalled. Weeks turned into months, turned into years, and then it would be decades. Investigators had few clues to go on, but nothing ever panned out for them. The question as to who had so violently taken Wendy Jo's life continued to linger over the investigators like a dark cloud, never really giving way to anything promising the anonymous, unidentified man who'd killed her eluded them. And the questions lingered. The mystery persisted. It carried on. Longer than some of the detectives who first worked on the case. Longer than some of the individuals they had on their first list of potential suspects. 
Even as new investigative tools, advances in forensics, technology, the passage of time, new clues surfaced, but nothing brought about the identity of who murdered Wendy Joe. Her death, her murder, I should say, weighed heavily on her mother, her father, and of course, her sister. It devastated their family. Not knowing who did this, who was responsible, it was unbearable. For years, Wendy Joe's mom and dad left her bedroom just as she had left it the last day she walked out of their home. Driving down Fairfax was like reliving a nightmare over and over again. Seeing green thunderbirds like hers brought all the anguish flooding back. Wendy Joe's father became a familiar face at his local police station, making sure that he regularly stopped in to inquire about any new leads or clues in the case of his daughter's death. Everyone at the station knew him. He continued to offer rewards to anyone who had any information about her death or of anyone who had last seen her the day she died. Her father never gave up looking for the man who took his daughter away from him. Dreamers, her death hit everybody hard, but it seemed like it hit her father the hardest. As Wendy Joe was born on his birthday, they shared that day. That was theirs. Every year was a celebration that was abruptly and violently cut off at year 23. That would be the last. He would have 27 more without her. Of course, they all felt robbed of the milestones Wendy Joe did not live to see. Finishing college, having a career, getting married, having children. The pain of having to live without your loved one is one thing, but the pain of not knowing who took their life is crushing. As their father was getting up there in years, he asked Wendy Joe's sister to make him a promise, promise him one thing. If something were to ever happen to him, to please never forget her sister and do anything that she could think of to find out who murdered her. Wendy Joe and Linda's father, Lee, died October 5th, 1995 at the age of 80. And her mother, Kay, died September 5th, 2014 at the age of 98. Neither one of them living long enough. And they both certainly did live long, especially Kay. Neither living long enough to have ever learned who the killer of their daughter was. Linda held out hope, but she was beginning to think that she would go to her grave as well, never knowing either. About 30 years later, so 1998-ish, a criminalist working for the Los Angeles Police Department was assigned to Wendy Joe's cold case. DNA testing was still in its infancy, Remember the debacle that was the O.J. Simpson investigation? That was only four years earlier. Well, since then, the LAPD had been working towards fine-tuning its work with the forensic techniques when it came to testing and analyzing DNA. 
the department was looking at cold cases that had strong genetic evidence to work with, particularly murders where they knew that they had potential DNA samples from the killers. Wendy Jo's case was potentially one of them because she had been sexually assaulted. The criminalist was asked to examine some of the evidence that had been collected during the initial investigation into her murder. When examining Wendy Jo's capri pants and her underwear, evidence that had been kept all those years and preserved, it was discovered that semen was present on both articles of clothing. They weren't sure if they would be able to extract DNA from the samples, as three decades had passed. Would the sample provide a viable DNA profile? Or was it too late? Could it have been too degraded to be tested? They didn't know, but they had to try. And guess what? They managed to get a DNA profile from the semen samples on Wendy Jo's clothing. They had the profile of the killer in their grasp. Now, all they had to do was find a match to it, and they would finally be able to put this to bed. Investigators first went to the four men, the ones they had suspected based solely on the fact that they were within Wendy Joe's close circle. The boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, the brother-in-law, and the friend. They tracked each one of them down, the ones that they had drilled with questions so many years earlier, and took blood samples from each one of them. And one by one, each man was eliminated, finally, as a suspect. I kind of wondered how each of them had fared over the years, having been under that umbrella of suspicion, but particularly Wendy Joe's boyfriend at the time, how he did all those years. Having been the one under the most suspicion for having been the one to have spotted her car from the helicopter and failing that polygraph examination. I wonder if Wendy Jo's parents thought it was him all along, believing that he was the man that killed their daughter and all but got away with it. Well, it wasn't him. It wasn't any of them. But the upside of all of this was investigators could move forward from them. Instead of being hung up on those initial suspicions, they could now, with certainty and confidence, look elsewhere. But just as they were moving on from those suspects, the investigation began to sputter to a stop again. They had the DNA, yes, but they didn't have the technology to keep on testing it without destroying more and more of the sample. And they just couldn't run their sample through the state and nationwide databases yet. They just had to wait again. The detectives on the case at this point in time were beginning to think that this mystery was going to outlive them as well. They were hugely disappointed. They felt like they were close, but they just would have to wait for some more time to pass. And there would be a break that nobody saw coming. 48 years later. 48 years and this wasn't going to be a case like you heard last weekend with Gerald Mason the man who had killed twice in one night and then never committed another crime for the next 46 years that he was on the lam no this you will come to find 
was much, much more disturbing. Jumping ahead to 2016, the LAPD had assigned three investigators to Wendy Joe's case, and they had been on it for years. Harry Klan, the criminalist, Richard Bankson, the LAPD cold case detective, and Peter Berman, a former lead deputy district attorney who was now assigned to assist detectives in re-examining old cases for fresh clues. Detective Bankson was a part of the unit in the LAPD that handles the toughest cases in the city of Los Angeles, the Robbery Homicide Division. Out of the original eight detectives that were reassigned to the LAPD's cold case unit, which was created in 2001, he was one of them. And by 2016, he was the only one of the original eight that was still on the force. A wealth of valuable experience he had which was especially needed in a case as cold as Wendy Joe's. Detective Bankson would be best described as one of your classic old-school detectives. Razor-sharp, dogged, persistent, demanding of answers and truth. In his office, on his desk, he kept Wendy Joe's files, orderly and neat, where he could look at them easily and frequently, always hoping that a clue or a lead would suddenly jump out at him. During the summer of that year, he wanted Clan, their criminalist, to submit the DNA sample once again into the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS for short. We've talked about this database before. It has all the DNA profiles of every criminal in the United States who has been required to provide a sample to be inputted into the system. They were riding their hopes on improvements in technology and advances in science that would finally be able to catch up to their suspect. So Clan put the sample in and hit send. His next move was a text message to Detective Bankson. Are you sitting down? We all know that the person being asked this question is about to get either some really, really good news or some really, really bad news. Fortunately, this news was good. The best. Edwin Dean Richardson. Who? Investigators began digging into this name that had suddenly appeared before them in their latest database search. He had a criminal record that had its beginnings during his childhood in the state of Ohio. Crimes that would be sprinkled across the United States. Crimes that started off as thefts, then burglaries, and then he eventually graduated to much more violent crimes. The man was a drifter. He picked up work when he could and bounced from state to state as he went along. In 1960, Richardson racked up a kidnapping and attempted robbery conviction in San Diego, California. For that, he served eight years in prison, having been granted parole in April of 1968, only five months prior to Wendy Joe's murder. His trail picked back up again in 1981 when he was convicted of the murder of 21-year-old Joanna Bogner in Belmont County, Ohio which is a steel and coal community on the eastern side of Ohio, near the border of Pennsylvania. 
For this, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. I looked up Joanna's case. There isn't a whole lot of information out there, but I did see her picture. And just like Wendy Joe, Joanna was a stunningly beautiful brunette. And her murder? A near-carbon copy of Wendy Joe's as well. On November 28, 1977, she left home to take care of a few errands, and she never came back. Her body was found a little more than a month later, on December 31, 1977, New Year's Eve, at approximately 4.30 in the afternoon. She had been left in Dallas Pike, West Virginia, sexually assaulted and strangled. I looked at a map so I could put this into perspective. Richardson was operating in an area of Ohio that is in very close proximity to both Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Dallas Pike is located in a region of West Virginia known as the Northern Panhandle. It's this bit of the state that juts out north and cuts in between Pennsylvania and Ohio. The Ohio River is what creates the border between Ohio and this northern panhandle of West Virginia. So when Richardson murdered Joanne, he went across the river and left her in a whole different state. Like I said, Joanne was a lovely, popular, and talented young woman. She graduated from Union Local High School in Morristown, Ohio in 1974. After high school, she went to Belmont Technical School and Jefferson Technical School. She did volunteer work at Barnesville Hospital in the town of the same name in Ohio, and she also had a part-time job at Martins Ferry Hospital in Martins Ferry, Ohio. She was survived by her parents, Kirk and Nell Bogner, her brother Kent, and sisters Vicki and Becky. And not only was Richardson convicted of Joanne's murder in 1981, he was also convicted of kidnapping two more girls while he was in West Virginia. The Belmont County Sheriff at the time, Tom McCourt, who had also spent years as an investigator for the county prosecutor prior to being elected sheriff, for three years searched for Richardson. He vanished not too long after Joanne's body had been discovered. Sheriff McCourt eventually was able to find a phone bill that belonged to Richardson that had some numbers included on it connecting him to a mobile home park in the city of Mesa, Arizona. Sheriff McCourt flew out to Mesa and found Richardson. He placed him under arrest and, together, they flew back to Ohio so he could be made to face the murder and kidnapping charges he had been avoiding. Sheriff McCourt said that while they were on the plane, flying back, that Richardson actually started bragging about having killed another young woman, telling the sheriff that he had concealed her body in a heavy blanket and threw her over the side of a cliff. Richardson took a lot of pride in the fact that he was able to get away with so much. Very, very proud of himself, this Richardson. He obviously isn't that good at it, being that he's on a plane, after he'd ran more than halfway across the country to hide, and they still got him because of a discarded phone bill. Of Richardson, McCourt would say, the only people that I could think of that I had to deal with 
that were of a more sickening nature were pedophiles. To me, he fit in the same category, preying on the weak and defenseless. Fast forward about 20 years, barely into the new millennium, cold case investigators all the way back in Orange County, California again, were working on a 1972 cold case, the murder of 23-year-old Marla Jean Hires. She too was sexually assaulted and strangled, but she had been wrapped in a blanket and tossed over an embankment, just like Richardson had told the sheriff on that plane so many years earlier. So cold case detectives who still hadn't had so much as a suspect in Marla Jean's murder ran their DNA sample that they had recovered from her through the national database. And what do you know? Whose name pops up yet again? Edward Dean Richardson. Of course, he's still in prison in Ohio, but he would eventually be flown back out to California to be made to face the charges in Marla Jean's murder. And he would go on to plead guilty to her murder. On December 6th, 2006, Richardson was ushered into court in a wheelchair. He was by then 70 years old. He had been diagnosed with emphysema, requiring oxygen to be pumped into his lungs. Oh, the irony that the state of California must provide this man who had ravaged so many lives with life-saving oxygen. It's not lost on me, dreamers. Anyway, I looked at pictures of him. He was so frail, wispy gray hair, and a yellow prison jumpsuit on. He was sentenced to life in prison, which didn't look like that was going to be very much time. I could not find that much information about Marla Jean herself, though. I couldn't find a picture of her either. But if Richardson stayed true to form then I'm certain she was another beautiful brunette who was caught off guard doing some menial task or running an errand near her home in the small city of Staten, California, a place that's kind of tucked in the shadows of Knott's Berry Farm. And Richardson saw an opportunity to yet again prey on another unsuspecting woman. I think with this third killing, he had just elevated himself to serial killer. Is it three murders? I'm pretty sure it's three, maybe four. Marla Jean's husband at the time that she was murdered and her son, who was only two years old when his mother was taken from him, had the opportunity to give their impact statement at Richardson's sentencing. Martin Hires, Marla Jean's husband, stood before the judge, tears welling up in his eyes, and described how he went from husband to widower, to homicide suspect. After that, he looked over at the pathetic old man seated in his wheelchair. It must have been surreal looking at this person who admitted to being the one who more than 30 years earlier kidnapped, raped, and strangled his wife. And somehow, Martin told him that he forgave him, stating in part, There are not enough words available to explain the impact that this man's violence had on my life. I can only say that I forgive him for what he's done 
and hope that his life and soul will be forgiven by our Lord. Richardson sat stoically. He did not move. He did not look at anything. He refused to say anything, despite the fact that when Marla Jean's son got up, he asked him, implored him for an apology. Richardson had no words for the man whose mother he'd robbed him of when he was just two years old. At the time, Richardson was working at a construction site close to where the hires lived. Her vehicle was found abandoned in a nearby parking lot the same day that she went missing, and her body was found the following morning in the city of Yorba Linda, California, which is in the northern part of Orange County. Another murder, another mirror image of his others. And just like the others, as soon as Marla Jean's body was discovered, he skipped town, leaving Orange County behind and headed back to Ohio. The lead detective on Marla Jean's cold case spent years continually entering the DNA sample he had in her case. For years he did this, until one day in 2004, he got the hit on Edward Dean Richardson. Can you guys imagine the excitement that that detective experienced when his DNA match finally materialized before his eyes? And just in the nick of time, too. Richardson had a good chance of being paroled from his conviction in Ohio pretty soon. He was already into his 60s. In a footnote to this particular case, Marla Jean's husband, Martin, was not only treated as a suspect in her murder for more than 30 years by police, he was treated as a suspect by Marla Jean's family as well. And they remained steadfast in their convictions all the way up until the DNA hit cleared him. In court the day of the sentencing, Marla Jean's two sisters were present as well. It was the first time in more than 30 years that they had come face to face with Martin. After they all had the chance to give their impact statements, he and his former sisters-in-law finally embraced. Outside the court, they all said that this was the start of working on healing all of their wounds. Richardson was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Marla Jean Hires, which would essentially ensure that the man would never walk free again. So now, this man, Edward Richardson, came up as a DNA match in the murder of Wendy Joe. But as quickly as the excitement and exhilaration filled the detectives who had spent so many years looking for this man, the jubilance sank just as quickly because it was too late. By the time they were able to identify Richardson as Wendy Joe's killer, the man who had raped and strangled her 48 years earlier, died in prison four years before. Bankson felt defeated, saying, even alive and in prison is better than dead, because then I get to go to him and say, guess what, I'm going to put another charge on you. But. Richardson was dead. They lost their chance to speak to him or confront him. But worse, 
they'd lost their chance to physically take a DNA sample straight from him and compare it to their decades-old sample that he had left behind when he murdered Wendy Joe, just to make sure that he was their man. Fortunately, Orange County, who had sentenced him 10 years earlier for Marla Jean's murder, still had Richardson's information on file, and they still had a blood sample that the Los Angeles County officers were able to use to confirm their match. They were also given the opportunity to look through Richardson's Orange County case file to try and learn more about him, his background, his criminal history, his modus operandi, and everything about how he conducted himself in his past crimes matched up almost perfectly with Wendy Joe's case. There were some unsettling parallels between Wendy Joe's, Marla Jean Hires, and Joanne Bogner's cases. As I said earlier, they were all young, very lovely, beautiful brunettes. They were by themselves when they were abducted. Each of them was sexually assaulted and strangled, and each of their vehicles were found abandoned nearby. Detective Bankson described Richardson as an opportunistic killer. He would be somewhere close by, lying in wait, searching for his perfect victim one who met his particular tastes. She had to have a vehicle, and she needed to be alone. And while she wasn't watching or paying attention, he would approach them, just as they were about to get into their car, probably in a threatening manner. Maybe he had a weapon of some sort. If he did, either a gun or a knife, he never used it to kill any of his victims. He would force them into the passenger seat and would drive off with them. And because of the gaps in time between his crimes, Detective Bankson is very, very concerned that there may be more unsolved murders of young women that could be attributed to this killer. He doesn't believe Richardson only stopped at three, and he does consider him to be a serial killer. And although it is not common for a serial killer to take these lengthy breaks, it does happen. BTK serial killer Dennis Rader took a break, as did the grim sleeper here in Los Angeles, Lonnie Franklin Jr., took a significant break as well. But hopefully, if there are any police departments anywhere across the country that have a very cold case from the 60s or 70s, they will be able to input their DNA samples to someday find a match. And there was actually another pretty 22-year-old brunette, 1965's Miss San Fernando Valley as a matter of fact, who was killed one year after Wendy Jo on December 23, 1969. Margie Shewitt told her parents that she was going Christmas shopping and she never returned. Her case is also unsolved. She was found beaten and strangled to death in the city of Burbank, California. However, her car was discovered in all places. That very same thrifties parking lot where Wendy Jo had made that hairdryer purchase. The sentiment is that that was way too much of a coincidence. They think that the cases are very likely to have been committed by the same person meaning Richardson. But sadly, 
in Margie's case, her evidence was misplaced. There is no DNA available to test against Richardson's. It came time for Detective Bankson to give Linda a call, Wendy Jo's sister, with the news that they finally identified the man who murdered her all those years ago. He would say that this call was nerve-wracking for him. It could very well be a torrent of all kinds of emotions hitting a person all at once. But at least it was, for the most part, good news that it was no longer a mystery. It was unfortunate that no longer were her parents alive to have ever known, as well as the fact that Edward Dean Richardson was no longer alive either, meaning Linda would never be given the chance to ever confront him about what he'd done. That part was really difficult to reconcile. When her phone rang, Linda was enjoying brunch with her husband, so she let the call go to her voicemail. Later on, when she listened back, she heard the words, We found who killed your sister. Right away, she had a sickening feeling in her stomach. She set aside some time to make the drive out to the Los Angeles Police Department headquarters to meet For the very first time, the investigators who, once her sister's case landed on their desks, were never going to give up looking. She had so many unanswered questions floating around in her head. They knew she had been heartbroken and long-suffering for many years. They took their time in thoroughly and patiently answering each one of her questions as best they could. 48 years cold, this was the longest case they'd ever solved. They took her through the sick journey that was the life of Edward Richardson. How Wendy Jo had just happened upon that unfortunate circumstance of having been at the wrong place at the wrong time when she fell victim to a serial killer. All Linda could say in a whisper over and over again was that this was unbelievable. Detective Bingson cast his glance over to two boxes sitting on a nearby desk. Those two boxes were still marked with the original 1968 LAPD evidence label taped to the top of them. They held inside them items that were recovered from Wendy Joe's prized green Thunderbird some papers from school, perhaps some lecture notes or homework, a few handwritten letters, the contents of which I don't know, and her California driver's license. All the items of a life interrupted. She thanked the detectives for all they had done to bring them some answers. They helped carry those 48-year-old boxes of evidence, now keepsakes of her long-lost sister, to Linda's car and loaded them in there for her to have. Thank you again for taking some time to listen to yet again another episode of California Dreaming. Until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.